Hey, what's up, y'all? Thank you for tuning in to the Legacy and Currency Podcast. This is your host, Dilshan Singh. I'm joined here with my co-host, Herman Tucker. Um, we're recording this after our interview with this super inspiring entrepreneur. His name is Hewlett Smith. Um, Herman will talk a little bit more about him and his background, and uh, then we'll get right into the episode. Thank you again. Herman Tucker here, your co-host for today's show. So Hewlett Smith, he's the CEO and co-founder of Rehab Mart. He's also a pediatric occupational therapist. So I found his story to be super inspirational, inspiring, just as this person who's being interested in going into the medical field. And also, um, he talks about his challenges as an entrepreneur and as a father and how he dominated whatever cards life dealt him. And he applied those to dominate his life and his business. And I hope you enjoy his interview as much as we did. And I hope you enjoy today's show. And Sirius XM is kind of on a downhill slide because yeah. Apple, oh, Apple Music and everything's taking over. Spotify. I own a few stocks. I need to sell. Okay. I didn't know about that. <laughs> yeah. They've, uh, but I think so. I think they're losing their market share slowly. Yeah. You think about I mean, it's still, um, to me, it's. Like out on the lake in certain places, you can't uh, stream because of, of internet. Now, I guess with Spotify or whatever, if you download, you could, but, but yeah. where I think where they're getting to a lot of that, you just download playlists. Yeah, you can download playlists. So download music, you just download it, and it, you can download it to your right. cloud and everything. All right, well, that's going to probably get marginalized that. Yeah, if you ever Look, the whole it. Blockbuster Netflix thing. Blockbuster uh, had the chance, I don't know if you've heard of that, that whole story. Blockbuster had the chance to buy Netflix yeah. for a million bucks. Yeah. And they passed on. That's crazy. Yeah. It's dumb. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it was dumb. Yeah, it was just a dumb move, but you know, I, I, people. I would have strung together a million dollars somehow. Yeah, it would have, would have, would have been a problem for yeah. them at the time because they were so dominant. So, yeah. so you guys, the other part of your thing is so uh, we talked about all that is is this podcast show. So yeah, we just is, recently started this. So this is more of just one. It's a learning platform for us, mm-hmm. and um, the second thing is to help other people learn. Just because the way I learn best is through other people's stories, mm-hmm. and like it's kind of like having mentors, but many of them, yeah, in a sense. And it's best to learn like from older people too. You yeah. know, that's been in it for a while. Yeah, yeah. been doing it a little while. Yeah, I kind of think I've all, so. I have a passion. I maybe this is later on. We've, we've thought about doing this with. Um, so I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, and I'm on the board of for Athens, and I'm passionate about all this. But, but the other part of my world was was an occupa- being an occupational yeah. therapist mm-hmm. and really empowering uh, special needs kids or parents or caregivers mm-hmm. of, of someone who's had a disability because there's a lot of good stuff you can do with mm-hmm. hyperbarics, just eating well that will improve the, the recovery process mm-hmm. and you know, if you have some of the worst injuries I used to I used to be on a traumatic brain injury unit and uh, kids with cerebral palsy uh, you think of them having like problems walking all but it all started with a brain injury mm-hmm. like they went mm-hmm. without oxygen or they were their brain was born premature sometimes they have bleeds in utero or a blood vessel will burst mm-hmm. so you, you know everyone goes oh man their, their arms are all contracted or they're walking funny and, with, and you know when I first started you know people say oh what's wrong with their legs something must have happened to their legs it's like no nothing happened nothing happened to their legs they were born with that you know more premature and they had a bleed and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. you know I started educating people around that but then I started just working with a lot of leaders around the world or therapists and integrated practitioners who started speaking to this thing called neurogenesis it's going yeah. um, Anytime there's damage to tissue, the body wants to heal it, even if you have mm-hmm. a, a wound or a burn, mm-hmm. and depending on the severity of the wound. So we, I started looking like at brain injuries like wounds. So at some point, um, 
that's one of the things with Caregiver University mm -hmm. here. We're, we, we do e-commerce, e but no one really wants to have to buy a medical supply. They, they want to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. So I'm increasingly, we're trying to pivot our company to be more of a solutions-oriented company. And we, we believe in the long term we'll sell more stuff mm -hmm. and we'll be more Amazon-proof. Amazon obviously is a big threat to anyone who sells anything. Yeah, absolutely. Because yes. if Amazon decides <laughs> that they're going to start warehousing it and buying five tractor-trailer loads, I mean, there's a, that's happened to us on a few commoditized-type items. Mm -hmm. Because if they can buy you know, two tractor-trailer loads and put them in their warehouses, then we went to Amazon and go, shit, their stuff is actually cheaper. Like, you're buying that cheaper. And I'm buying it direct from the manufacturer, mm -hmm. the, the, the supplier. Yeah. Like I have a you know, direct relationship, and it's like, wow, that's five. You know, that, that skew is five dollars cheaper with free shipping. My price direct from the warehouse was like you know, maybe two dollars more, but I got to pay for shipping mm -hmm. to drop ship it somewhere. Mm -hmm. yep. And that gets scary, you know. And unfortunately, we sell a lot of stuff that's like hyperbaric chambers and things that aren't so mm -hmm. commodity driven or mm -hmm. commoditized, and we're able to still you know continue to grow. But mm -hmm. it is something that kind of keeps you up occasionally. You don't mm -hmm. be fearful, but that's why yeah, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into some of that with these mm -hmm. questions. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I read, read your whole story yesterday. I went through your blog and everything. Okay. I did some research this whole week and really love your story. Super inspiring. I want to let you know that. Oh, thanks. It's super I amazing. Did, yeah. I did some stuff in India, so I've been there yeah. a lot. Oh, yeah. yeah. We have yeah. read yeah. about that, too. I've been, uh, <laughs> I, um, the last thing I'd like to, this might be, might not be part of the interview and I won't talk, I have a problem with like going on and on, oh, but good. I went to, so I've got an Indian grandfather, Dr. Gunlan mm -hmm. Taswell, I went up, I went over there because my daughter had this bleed and, um, mm -hmm. you know, she essentially just had a massive, massive stroke, which destroyed her primary visual cortex and they were like, you know, she's, she's going to be blind, she had her visual MRI, we have a picture, MRI, visual cortex, destroyed, that came from the neurosurgeon and, um, we actually found out she had this stroke a month before she was born. And this was our first baby. My wife's a physical therapist. She's kind of a, you know, she was a, she was an elite gymnast. She trained with Mary Lou Retton. She was on the 84 Olympic team. She's a, she's like a very, you know, she's a, she's one of those, you know, eats well. She's a nice girl, you know, loves, she's a caregiver type, you know, likes to help people. And so I was, you know, I'm pretty fit. I'm not, wasn't perfect. I was working yeah. on that, but I was always, I like to go to the gym a little bit. I'm 20, mm -hmm. we're 27, 28 years old. So we weren't, my point is we weren't expecting this. No one, but no one does. Mm -hmm. And um, essentially that was a little bit of the start. Are we, we're not live yet, are we? We are. are we? We, 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 it's okay. We, okay. We, we can start back just, over. We, we, okay. Yeah, you can go ahead. If, if that's something you don't want to share. So no, of. I mean, I'm okay with sharing that. I didn't know that if this was just completely live. With, no, um, I mean, we're not live or anything. It's just right. we're going to record it here and then we're going to edit yeah, it. And you're going to edit it out and stuff yeah, like that. Absolutely. We just yeah. wanted to be authentic. Yeah, we just want to, we just <laughs> okay. want to keep it very authentic. We're not trying to like any, any, you know, anything fake. We want to do, we don't want to set anything up. Yeah. We want to okay. be authentic. All right. So this is just a real yeah. and raw. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir. Like it. Yeah. Well, so, essentially that was our, that was my connection to First Indy. I called up this guy. I'd, I read about it, Googled some stuff on the internet. I actually had a patient that shared that there was this physician in Pune, India that was doing Ayurvedic medicine and at that point because there was no cure for Sophia's brain injury, Megan and I were looking for anything that could potentially help her engage in, in, in brain healing, mm -hmm. what they call neurogenesis and our whole goal was to do no harm. Mm -hmm. So we looked at some, you know, some stem cell transplants from China but it was like donor stem cells mm -hmm. that maybe weren't a complete match. It wasn't FDA approved. It was really, really far outside the box, and mm -hmm. there was some there was some risk with some of those um, procedures. So we decided 
to do more kind of natural integrative things mm-hmm. and to try to create an environment to optimize healing and recovery. Mm-hmm. And so that's, you know, doing superb nutrition, doing some integrative medic, you know, not, not really medications, but more homeopathic lending mm-hmm. going, okay, worst case, worst case scenario, this may be placebo. It might not do any good, but we're not going to cause any additional harm. Yes. And so that was essentially, we, we actually created a, um, an analysis of all the interventions that were possible for her and we did a risk reward analysis wow. even for her so we looked at probably 75 different out-of-the-box activities that we could do mm-hmm. from different type of massage techniques to therapies to nutrition to obviously breast milk um, omega-3 oils um, there's a guy in Philadelphia by the name of Glenn Doman who's a physical therapist he started this place called the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential mm-hmm. And what he did, what he does, he did consultations for 40 or 50 years. He started back in the 50s, 60s, and he would bring parents to this huge campus outside of Philadelphia, and he would empower just parents to to feed their children better. He he invented some techniques called patterning. Mm -hmm. He did a a respiratory masking breathing technique that would help kids develop this kind of a fight-or-flight response Mm -hmm. so that their lungs would expand uh, by breathing in a rebreather bag. Mm-hmm. It was considered very controversial at the time when he first came up with the idea. But all these things were just natural kind of physiological, you know, exercise, endurance, mm-hmm. sensory integration, activity oriented. Toward the nervous system. Yeah, tra- toward, toward the brain and nervous system, trying to wake up the brain and nervous system, trying to stimulate really just uh, responses. So, you know, she had... She was blind, her eye, her pupils didn't respond to the light reflex. She had this vertical movement called nystagmus when she would set up. And um, so her optic nerve was pale, meaning that it didn't have, we actually were able to measure that, look at that with the ophthalmologist. And we knew that she didn't have a lot of neurons, specifically along the optic path, the optic nerve pathways. So we started stimulating all of that stuff. And we, we went to see the best people in the world to kind of, even though we were already occupational physical therapists, even we were actually already practicing pediatric occupational and physical therapists, but we didn't know everything, and you never know everything. Yeah. You're always you know, looking. You always you're always learning. You're always looking. You're always exploring, but that doesn't mean that you should do every. You know, you should adopt, drink the latest snake oil mm-hmm. yeah. that the salesman. You know. <laughs> Do some research. You know, knocks on the door. So yeah, you do, you do some research. You do a risk reward analysis. You look at any uh, if it is kind of integrative. You look to see if there's any emerging uh, evidence-based research mm-hmm. that could support the uh, the activity or the uh, the stuff that you're about to engage in. So it's a lot of work. You have to actually research it, and then you have to find the energy, the time, the resources to actually start doing the work so it's in a sense doing this with Sophia I didn't realize it at the time but it kind of paralleled some of the experiences I had as an entrepreneur mm-hmm. when when we started Rehab Mart back in 1997-98 mm-hmm. I didn't know that Sophia would be born in 2002 you know five years later mm-hmm. and that I would essentially have to go on this entrepreneurial journey mm-hmm. with my daughter because she had experienced a brain injury in utero. Okay. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about how you how you started, um, what made you want to start Rehab Mart and what you do here at Rehab Mart? So Rehab Mart kind of came out of an idea 
I think there was there was two kind of impetuses that, that made us want to start the company. Mm-hmm. Probably the first one was back around the year 1992. Mm-hmm. There was a there was an occupational therapist that came to our our school at the Medical College of Georgia. He was an occupational therapist, and he had invented I believe one of his first inventions was this thing called a button hook. If someone had a stroke, sometimes they only had a function left in one hand. They were they were paralyzed on, on one side. Mm-hmm. So uh, in order to button yourself with one hand, you needed this little little metal thing on a piece of wood. You would stick through the the opening of a of a slit or, or where the button goes through. He would you stick it through there. He grabs the button under the on the one hand and it pulls the button through. So oh, someone with one hand. So he started developing like one-handed tools mm-hmm. when they did because they didn't exist. Uh, just because he was working with these patients, they had these life-changing, you know, things occur like a stroke or maybe a traumatic brain injury, and so we were impressed that here's a guy that created a business by helping people solve problems, and he was creating products, and then he realized that there needed to be a way to sell these products, so he kind of started this big catalog called the uh, Salmons Preston Catalog. His, his name was Fred Salmons. It was kind of like it reminded me. It was about 500 pages. It was wow. thick, and he didn't invent everything in there. He sold he sold a lot of rehabilitation stuff. You could get everything from a pair of crutches to you know one of those button hooks, all the way down to like an ultrasound machine that a physical therapy clinic would use, um, and all you know all of this stuff, all of this rehabilitation gear, and 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 things, and we were just really impressed that he went from his basement. He started off in his basement or his garage like most entrepreneurs and inventors, you know, inventing a single product and he turned that into multiple products and then of course he started selling essentially the equivalent of a Sears and Roebuck catalog for rehabilitation products. And no one, I I believe to my knowledge, he was the first person to do that. So he came to our school and he talked about that and he dropped off all of his catalogs and we, we, we weren't that smart, but you know, I'm 22, 23 years old, but I understood he was branding. I was like, okay, he's yeah. dropping off his catalog, <laughs> and he's like, he's already kind of, he's knowing that most of these therapists are going to have long careers in hospitals and clinics, mm-hmm. in private practice maybe, and that they were going to probably remember this, uh, this day with Fred Sammons. And I know I remember it. I still remember it very well. And at the very end of the, of the day, he had this Polaroid camera. You guys know what a Polaroid mm-hmm. it was? An instant, yeah. instant camera. And he was like, who wants to have free photo with Fred? This guy's Fred. And I'm like, and of course, I was the first one. Like, dude, hell yeah, I want a free photo with Fred. Who doesn't? And Fred, he had this white hair. And he was kind of like a plump, grandfatherly guy. If he grew a beard and put on a, a red suit, he'd look probably like Santa Claus or something. But, and he was jolly. I would, I would describe Fred as very jolly. And somewhere in a, in a, in a, in a scrap box, uh, we have that free photo, free photo with Fred. Mm-hmm. So about a month after that, Mike... Mike was my one of my good friends. He was in the same program as, as to, we were in this occupational therapy program together at, in Augusta, Georgia, mm-hmm. at the medical college. And we kind of, I remember we started having conversations. Wouldn't it be cool to do something like Fred's done, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, the internet had, was, was kind of in its infancy in, you know, 91, 92. Mm-hmm. We finished uh, there at that program in 1993. But that kind of, you know, the conversation started then around 92, 93 after we met after we met Fred. And then um, I finished school and I decided to become a traveling occupational therapist. Traveled around the country and did short-term contract assignments, mostly at hospitals for three months, three, four months at a time. And I realized that these catalogs, you just could, it was hard to find things in catalogs. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a whole lot of this in the internet, mm-hmm. uh, only the 
the early adopters had dial-up internet yeah. over the 56k where actually I in the beginning it was probably like a 16k modem and eventually it became a 56k modem and um, you know pages loaded really really slowly and uh, I guess around 96 you know the idea for rehab marked and actually initially initially the first domain was rehab stuff so it was just we were thinking it's rehabilitation stuff it's rehab stuff it's a start <laughs> that was a start that was the first website you can still go back and look at some of the history uh, you know page screenshot sites and see mm -hmm. there you, somewhere on the web you can definitely still find uh, early screenshots of rehabstuff.com oh, wow. so by 19 late 1997 we had actually we had rehab stuff mm -hmm. up and going with a few products okay and then I believe it was 98, some, sometime in 1998, when we actually incorporated Rehab Mart. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we, we always, we, we kicked around, you know, a whole list of names, but um, from what I remember, at some point, Mike really felt like Rehab Mart was more professional sounding, mm -hmm. and stuff was just too kind of mm -hmm. s slang, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. So wow. we settled on Rehab Mart, and by, by the end of 98, we were kind of up and going, and uh, we had a basic website with it with a handful of products for sale. Mm -hmm. you know. What would wow. you say your biggest setback was starting to do that more? What would suddenly repeat? So the, the biggest setback mm -hmm. from st with starting Rehab Mark? Like when you first started. Did you have like any major problems you ran into or financial issues or cash flow issues? I know that's sort of something I deal yeah. with, especially cash flow and keeping employees on and yeah. hiring and firing. Just as a new leader, it, it's hard. Did you have any setbacks like that or? Yeah, we did. You did? We did. We had some, it was, so I don't know what the failure rate was probably what over 90% wow. of most startups fail. Mm -hmm. I think there's some, some data, good data on that, but mm -hmm. it's at least 90%. It might be as high as 95%. And we were aware of that because in the late nineties, there was an internet boom and there's a lot of e-commerce startups and probably more than 90% of those failed. Our, our biggest challenge, I would say, was um, essentially resources. Mm -hmm. um, and in those days, there wasn't a lot of off-the-shelf software. So everything, even our shopping cart had to be custom written. You couldn't collect credit cards easily. Like today, you can create a credit card merchant account in five minutes with yeah. Square or something Paypal, like that. Yeah. Anything. Paypal, yeah. And back in those days, you had to go through a bunch of applications with merchant services through either a bank or someone like Heartland or you know something like that 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 uh, you just made you jump through a lot of hoops and there was a lot of resistance to even accepting cards over the internet because of security and fraud and it wasn't mm -hmm. a standard way that people did purchasing you know in the in the late 90s so anyone that was buying on, and shopping on the internet for sure were referred to as early adopters back in back in those days so that was a challenge because we just had to create it from scratch and you literally, you couldn't Google it. You could Google some things by the early 2000s for sure, but, uh, or Yahoo, back in before Google, it was Yahoo, right? Yahoo things. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the availability of information, of, of, of you know, of, of sharing code, of, you know, getting a head start, you had to literally, when Mike started programming, he went to Barnes & Noble and he bought HTML books and he was sitting there just pouring over books. And a lot of the things that any early adopter was doing is with as far as building sites, there was no, um, there wasn't a lot, there wasn't any college classes on it. You know, this was something, I remember, so with, with Mike, the story for Mike was this. When we, um, a few years into, into being an occupational therapist, I remember having a conversation with him and he said, you know, I, I don't really, I'm not enjoying being a therapist so much. 
I think the internet's going to be huge. Is essentially what he said. Mm-hmm. And, I, and he said, "I'm going to be a programmer. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to help program the internet. I'm going to, I'm going to what do you mean? You're going to program the internet? You know, <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to create stuff. Have, 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 and he did. He had like Mike is still a prolific idea generator. And he, and so uh, I I don't I don't know we we talk you know the genesis of whether where Rehab Mart was his main idea or my main idea I think I think it's mine and he probably thinks it's his to some degree but I will say this Rehab Mart I was I was more singular focused that, mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons we survived Rehab Mart survived and I think Mike would agree with this I was very singular focused now Mike generated ten twenty ideas and, and it's probably started twenty different sites and. Um, you need you need you need some some of both, and I think maybe um, as partners in the beginning, one of the challenges again, I was operations minded, he was technology minded. I sometimes I, I doubt we would have survived if we were both programmers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I I mean I know a little bit about code, and I know just a little bit to be dangerous, but. I, I, mean, I, you know, I have an OT degree, I have an MBA. I'm not even sure the MBA helped help me as much as just spending the last eight, 19 years working at Rehab Mart. I just, you, you learn how to do business and especially how to do technology business and, and e-commerce business by, by just waking up every day doing and it. doing it. Mm-hmm. And you guys have probably experienced that as, as entrepreneurs. Sure. Yeah. Did, you, did you want to be an entrepreneur growing up? Like was in anybody in your family entrepreneurial minded or did they have a business? and? Or did you just, as you went through college, you decided that occupational therapy, you could actually help more people by being, creating rehab mart than just occupational therapy? Or was it something you wanted to do since you were a child? So, no, I, I didn't think about the term entrepreneur. So I grew up in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And the term entrepreneur was not something that that I was familiar with. I know that there were people being entrepreneurs in the 70s, mm-hmm. but it wasn't something, there wasn't startup communities. The internet was not a thing. Um, I can't, I lived in the South. My dad, my father was a pastor, kind of a, a conservative uh, pastor. So um, that was the world I was living in. So I wasn't thinking about being an entrepreneur. What I was thinking about doing was I, I from a young age, I knew I wanted to be impactful. Mm-hmm. And then no one, I didn't really have any, you know, people speaking into my life for that, other than maybe my father. My father always was, you know, he was... Um, he believed that whatever you did with your life that you should just make an impact and do good mm-hmm. so it wasn't beyond that I would say if I had influence from my father it probably would be those two things and so um, I had not connected the dots and said maybe you know and I think if you really if, especially if you start with something new if you want to do good and be impactful you probably are going to be an entrepreneur mm-hmm. but that wasn't a word that I understood at the time mm-hmm. or, or I probably had heard it but I'd never really been yeah. You know, there's so much, cl- so there's so many classes and so many things today. You know what everyone knows what it is, but I just wasn't exposed to it. So yeah, I feel like uh, entrepreneurship is a lot more popular now than it was back in the day. Or even running a business isn't as taboo now. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like, cause, I mean, I grew up in the, I was born in '98, so um, I feel like um, now that in this generation, like entrepreneurship is actually something people will, like want to do, and parents are okay with it. I feel like back in the day it was more um, education based. You go to school, you graduate, and that's how you build life, correct? Am I right? Yeah, that was for sure. You, you chose a career, and even in, before the 70s, most people went to school, went to work for a company, mm-hmm. and that was what you did. You didn't hear near as much. I mean, say at some point, someone had to start those companies. I mean, I knew about Henry Ford. Mm-hmm. You know, every once in a while in school, you'd learn about the great entrepreneurs for sure. You, you'd learn about Orville and Wilbur Wright. You know, you'd, 
you'd learn Rockefeller, all these great industrialists. And at some point, you knew that they had started things. Mm-hmm. I mean, you learned that you know the, 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 the Wright brothers were building bicycles before they built planes, or Henry Ford, you know, did a lot of trial and error before he finally made the car happen, and of course, mm-hmm. then automated it with the production with the assembly line. But yeah, no, it, the world is such a different world now because I think just the, the, the availability of information and the, dissemina- the dissemination of information is obviously, that is the game changer. Um, I think one of their, that I'm going too far onto this, one of the downsides to that is that there's so much information mm-hmm. that um, it, could, it can be clouding, it can be uh, disruptive um, with people getting just information overload and you know, mm-hmm. what does that what happens when that occurs I think um, maybe for some that you, you've got to be able to choose and be focused and there's a there's a great book about that you know choosing wildly important goes doing mm-hmm. one or two things probably just one thing at a time and I think maybe the threat to, for many of us is that because there's so many options and there's so much information that we can be trying to focus on 10 things mm-hmm. at, a, at a time Mm-hmm. And that's not possible. Yep. We can only focus. We can, you know, that, I think that whole uh, that research that was done into multitasking is so valuable. Mm-hmm. We we don't multitask. Mm-hmm. We single task. We switch from one task to another. So if you've got twenty things you're trying to study for, or twenty things you're trying to be good at, you're not going to be good at any of them because you're not multitasking. You're single tasking between twenty things. So that's something that I'm still learning about and mm-hmm. trying to make sure that personally I don't fall into the multitasking trap mm-hmm. and also trying to learn you know, that my business doesn't try to do mm-hmm. you know, 10 things all at once. Oh. No. Yeah. I know that's something I struggle with. I'm very much like a business partner. I'm very idea-minded. I just want to try new things, do new things. and I'm glad my business partner, his name is Noah, he's not here. Um, I'm glad he's, the, he's like you. He, he, he's, he keeps me in line pretty much, keeps me focused. That's great. So I think that having that between two partners, having one partner that has one skill set, maybe another partner mm-hmm. if it's three people, you know, making sure that there's not a little bit of overlap is probably okay, but having um, under partners probably should sit down when they form companies and really talk about where their strengths and weaknesses are and mm-hmm. probably have a discussion regarding role delineation. Because if you understand that and people can serve it differently, if you can divide, divide that up if it's three people, 33, 33, and 33, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's a really effective way mm-hmm. to, to go about doing things. Yep. Yep. There's one question you asked earlier on. The first question, I, I didn't give you a good straight answer about um, pitfalls or the, the big challenges. Mm-hmm. There was one other big challenge, so, so funding was really big. Mm-hmm. And um, about a year into our business, Mike brought two investors to the table. Mm-hmm. And I guess I was 27, 28 years old. And I didn't really want to take venture capital, but he did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, he did, I didn't make, want to make it a big thing. So we took about $75,000 and gave up about 20% of our company. Mm-hmm. And we burned, we did some um, print advertising and some marketing and Mike was going to work full time for the company. I was still running my therapy practice and mm-hmm. Mike was working a couple jobs as well. But that, that venture money only lasted about three or four months. Mm-hmm. So at the end of that, you know, Mike said, you know, I gotta make a living. By that point in time, he had two kids. I don't know if I had a kid yet or not. And I don't think I was married yet when that occurred. But 
I remember just having a conversation with him. Was you know, at some point he says, "I'm not sure. You know, this is kind of over. I guess." He says, "We can." And I said, "No, this isn't over. We're gonna, you're gonna create a company here. This is gonna be around in 20 years." And he kind of went, "Okay, well, you know, gotta have money." So at that point, I pulled the bit. The business would have. We had no money, mm-hmm. so I was running a small therapy practice and. I pulled the business into my living room, essentially, and I hired, we had one person working for us. Mm-hmm. She, she answered the phones, processed the orders, she did everything. And then at night, um, I would work on accounts, and then for any technology, Mike and I would set up after his kids went to bed, and we would get on the phone, and I, we would essentially work together. Mm-hmm. As he was coding, I was usually there supporting him and doing more administrative stuff. But we would set up until two in the morning, and I remember a couple years into this, we had a person. So the eight hundred number rang into our living room. We had one computer in our living room, or maybe I think we had, we had by that point we had three workstations because the Julie had a workstation, I had a workstation, Megan had a workstation, and we had an old. Um, I think we had a TV from Megan's grandmother that was a wood, you know, sitting on, sitting on the floor in one corner. But that was it. That was our, and we had a two, little two bedroom house and. Um, so our, our business was, it was our life, right? That mm-hmm. it, instead of having a living room, we turned that into the business. Mm-hmm. We even, I even put a sign in the front yard, which was kind of ridiculous <laughs> in the past. But it was, one of, it was a small, like, you know, three foot by three foot, or two foot by two foot sign, mm-hmm. metal sign that talked about, you know, Rehab Mart and, this, and WorkSafe Medical, which is, we started up a little medical equipment, local DME to, to do some Medicare billing, which we don't do anymore. But... That was the challenge. The challenge was, I remember a couple years in, Megan saying, how long are you going to keep on doing this? I mean, it, every year we, we, weren't, we were not profitable for four or five years. We were losing money. We were sitting up to two in the morning, lots of nights, not just for a year, not just for two years. I mean, we're talking three, four years. And it wasn't every night, but it was like many nights in the week, as long as the energy and the endurance would, would, would allow. And... The only way that we could continue without raising another round of funding was to do it this way. And I wasn't sure I wanted to raise another round of funding because I didn't want to give up more capital. Because I, and the reason I didn't want to give up more, um, not, not capital, I didn't want to give up more equity in the company was because um, I believed that we were going to be something one day. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to preserve our equity. So the sacrifice was I've got to sit up all night, I've got to put this company in my living room because we can't afford to rent. An office mm-hmm. so this went on for years wow. and um, and so uh, I'll, I'll give Megan credit you know she was at, I think everyone at that point you know I don't know and so that was the sacrifice essentially that I made and then when, when we got married uh, Megan made as well and eventually it's and this and even the accounting office stayed in my in my basement office for 18 years and we wow. and when just until two years ago we still had up to three bookkeepers coming to work in my basement accounting office and part of that was for to save money because mm-hmm. our call center was out in Elberton but at all other part of it was just to have good good accounting controls and all that because we didn't you know we didn't have a, a CFO or any wow. so that was just my I felt like it, like it was in my domain so that was the sacrifice mm-hmm. I guess again if we had taken we'd given up more equity and taken on more money we could have we could have maybe done it another way but I'm really glad we did it that way because it uh, allowed us to retain equity mm-hmm. but from that standpoint there there is a tremendous amount of sacrifice that that was made specifically on, on our part mm-hmm. but no one no one made me make Mike didn't make me make it that was kind of my in our in our strategic partnership he's the programmer mm-hmm. you know I'm the operation so I'm gonna I'm gonna 
hire the people, run the HR, run the call center, um, and he's going to essentially take care of software and, and servers and we and, and all, all the technological. But he really doesn't handle that. I handle all the all the tech infrastructure mm -hmm. on site. He just handles the the, the programming and the off site you know server infrastructure. We still. Uh, run our own server uh, facility, or not? We don't own the facility, but we we buy um, servers and uh, rent rack space. Wow! And the reason we do that, we've been doing it for twenty years. Mike's got another business partner, uh, Dwayne, and Dwayne's a, a a great virtualization server guy. So we're able to do that really cost efficiently and effectively. And because there, we have a twenty-year history of running all that infrastructure, mm -hmm. for us right now, it still just makes more sense to continue doing it. Wow. And so just to clarify, by day you were an occupational therapist, and by night you were running a company? That was it. By day I was an occupational therapist. I was, I was running a small practice. Mm -hmm. um, I had a school therapy, I had a school system contract. I did early intervention, pediatric occupational therapy services, and we also had nursing home contracts. So I had, had other, had, at one point we had about 10 therapists working for us as mm -hmm. well, and we were, we were running you know, a fairly successful small therapy practice, mm -hmm. but I got so... It was very difficult to continue to try to grow a healthcare practice but with all the re healthcare reform and regula regulatory stuff you have mm -hmm. to deal with. I mean, so I was do seeing patients all day, trying to do all my paperwork, trying to manage other therapists, and at the same time, I was running Rehab Mart. And um, we, I did that for 15 years. Wow. One of the, I think what I, and I had a mentor to me that said year, for years, he said, just stop doing so much therapy. But I was... Um, I guess it was fear. I, w I was making a decent living as a therapist, and we had a pretty good. And Rehab Mart wasn't paying me a salary; mm -hmm. you know, it covered internet access and the cell phone. But you know, so it, it was. He would always go, "You need to jump because if you'll jump." So what I did, I just slowly. I think Rehab Mart could have grown a lot faster, but because I was, I I did keep one foot in the the swimming pool of of therapy mm -hmm. and one foot or one leg in the pool for Rehab Mart. So I think it took us longer, and Mike was doing the same thing because we, we just weren't willing to seek another round of funding, and we were still growing at fifty percent, at least fifty percent revenue growth a year. Wow. So that was revenue growth; it was pretty good growth, and we were. So another thing that I did, and we never took any more funding. I was really big about increasing our operational basis in our in our operating checking account because I didn't want to borrow money. Mm -hmm. And so we essentially went 15 years and every year I would increase our operational basis and I would create margin. Now that hurt a little bit because as share owners, you have to pay, um, you get K1. So if you increase your operating margin, because a lot of people zero out their balance every year, mm -hmm. but, but we're, we're selling good. So we need, we need margin and then every, every year we'd get bigger. So as we sold a million dollars a year and then we had to buy $2 million a year and now we're buying more than $10 million a year. So we needed all this margin. And so, it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of sacrifice to create margin. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of it, if you're buying inventory, a lot of businesses you don't need as much of, of, of as much margin. But because we have this margin now, I don't want to say how much we have, but we, when our accountants look at our books, I'm just going to tell you this: we have from from an in an operating account, we have a healthy margin. Mm -hmm. And so, one of the other things my dad taught was was delayed gratification. So we had to pay through the years over over 20 years. We've had to I've increased that margin every year, wow. and that's kind of they've let me um, our our partners have let me do that, and they've had to we'll still pay enough to kind of pay our taxes, but we haven't paid all those distributions out. They're still sitting there. They're mm -hmm. there, but what that's allowed us to do is be very healthy financially. Mm -hmm. We never have to worry about payroll. We never have to worry about cash flow. 
so I don't I never wanted to run my business worrying about having it to get like a, a line of credit to to cover an invoice because then you're always you know dealing with banks and you're paying and you're spending all this interest and money and time worrying about lines of credit I know it's it's essential and it's required at times mm-hmm. so I think that was another reason that allowed this allowed us to be so healthy is that it's it's very contrary and very few people do this but I just continued to to allow us to have all this operating margin in our corporate operating account and now we're very healthy from that perspective now we make great you know we have good salaries we have this beautiful building that you're sitting in today now we did borrow money we we built a a building that's well over a million dollars here in Watkinsville Georgia um, last year uh, between January and May of 2017 but so we did borrow uh, some money for this building but not you know it's we're we're only borrowed about I'd say about 70 percent so um even with that, we've got we've got we, we've got a lot of equity in this in this mm-hmm. property and wow. in this campus. Yeah. How how many years did you guys go in before you guys were profitable? We were so from a standpoint of we were profitable two or three years in it into it, but we weren't paying. That was because we weren't getting a salary, or if, or if we were getting a salary, it was three or four thousand a year. Well, if you're working 30, 40 hours a week, and you're making three or four, so we were working. So from that standpoint, um, it was profitable, but the share owners weren't getting paid any. You know, essentially, we were just getting paid a stipend, we'll call it. Mm-hmm. And so we, and as we got, you know, we get to a point at some point where we could pay us ten thousand a year. Mm-hmm. And we and and I would always kind of say, well, but look, we actually got like I, small wins for me were like it's covering the cell phone bill, yeah, yeah. Um, it's covering the computer. It's like, well, yeah, I'll, I'll be like, well, yeah, I still, you know, I still email my mom on the computer sometimes. So, you know, I would just try to go well because everything we did was work. I mean, it would, uh, but it, you know, I was like, well, you know, it's got I, anything to me. I would, I if I couldn't pay myself a salary, I would say, well, you know, at least it's buying office equipment. Yeah. And I was like, I use office equipment. Well, of course, I use office equipment because I work 80 hours a week. But it would, to me, it was, um, that to me was still a win because my, my life was about um, just, just being productive and creating, that, and creating value. And the one thing I think that we lived off of was that every year we did see revenue growth. We wow. got more customers every year. We grew, we, grew our, we grew our profit every year. We grew our revenue every year. And we just did it because we we were we just we were just very methodical. So I'd say our we never had any lightning like five hundred percent you know revenue growth in a single mm-hmm. year, but we always had consistent quarter over quarter growth and year over year growth. Mm-hmm. It was very methodical growth. It was, it was pretty conservative, but we just kept pushing ahead and, and creating value every year. Wow! Did, okay. did did any of your like family or friends tell you that this idea was crazy? Then, yeah, I think, I mean, I would say I, most people were pretty supportive. I mean, I definitely think some family and friends kind of thought, wow, they've been working on this a long time. You know, um, that first house in Elberton was a rental house in an old mill village. And we didn't have to live there because I made a pretty good living as a therapist. Mm-hmm. But at that point, we didn't have kids. Um, I didn't see a need. You know, I wasn't a kind of, again, I created margin everywhere in my life. So. Even when I was a traveling occupational therapist, I made a good salary. I probably made you know seventy thousand dollars a year, and they had free housing, and that was a good salary. But what I did instead of going out and buying new cars, and you know, I had I had free housing when I would do, do my contract job. So I just saved money, wow. and I put I put aside money. So that that margin I keep speaking to, mm-hmm. 
allowed me to be an entrepreneur comfortably without having to worry about payroll or about, about having to worry about a big house payment. Now, by the time I got married, I had enough margin. I, I was still able to buy. My first home was a really nice home right outside of Athens, Georgia in mm-hmm. Winterville. I bought you know, a $300,000 home, which for me, right. that was the first yeah. nice starter home. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so I still had, um, you know, I had enough to buy the stuff that I needed. Mm-hmm. But I put my wants on a back burner and I created margins so that when the right time when I got married, when we had a child, and thank God because when, when Sophia needed that hyperbaric chamber back mm-hmm. in 2002, right after she was mm-hmm. born, that was $20,000. Yeah. That wasn't a problem for me, but I was only, because I didn't come from a wealthy family. None of my, nothing that I have was given through, um, I borrowed money to go to college. My dad was a small town pastor, so he wasn't able to give me those things, which is fine mm-hmm. because it taught me how to be self-sufficient. Wow. And how to create margin. So looking back, you know, I think I was. I'm so blessed that nothing was given to me. Mm-hmm. There was no college fund. There was no. I mean, he, I, my dad did help pay for my car insurance in college. Mm-hmm. And thank you, Dad, for that, and Mom. <laughs> but uh, that's about as far as it went because that's all they, you know, mm-hmm. maybe fifty dollars a month is all they could do. Wow, that's an amazing story. Yeah. Super inspiring. You spoke a little bit, bit about delayed gratitude. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? And so just so younger, I know a lot of younger entrepreneurs, everything they make, they spend it right away. Even if they have businesses, they're making, let's say they're making a hundred thousand, they're going out buying a 80, 90,000 all car. And yeah. So delayed gratification, I, I'll be 48 this year in November. And if I, if you ask me one thing that allowed, you know, I'm not saying this is the only path to success, mm-hmm. but because I started with nothing and I had to, and, and I'm, not, I'm not even sure my brother's have you know see delayed gratification to the same degree i do because mm-hmm. i don't they're, they're great guys tommy and pete but they didn't put resources aside like i chose to do but essentially you know as i said delayed gratification is simply putting your desires on hold mm-hmm. until you have accumulated enough wealth or resources mm-hmm to comfortably uh, purchase what you 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 first uh, need mm-hmm. because you address your needs first your true needs and then you, you address your wants mm-hmm. so I mean just to give an example now I I have other companies I mean get, having all that margin allowed me to start other businesses down the road that are now generating revenue it's allowed me to purchase a lot of commercial real estate. I own, I own, I'm a partner in a residential real estate services um, company now as well. I could have, I, I wouldn't have been able to get into any of those business ha- if I didn't have capital that mm-hmm. I had saved. And so, um, just to give you an example, when I first was an occupational therapist, I got out of school and I was attracted to being a traveling occupational therapist because there's this company that would uh, pay me a salary of about 70000 a year. Mm-hmm. But they also provided uh, housing because you were traveling every three months. So you got a corporate apartment, one bedroom apartment, was fully furnished. Mm-hmm. They took care of utilities, a phone. They took care of the car. Wow, wow. So I was like, it, it, as soon as I heard that, I just thought, I mean, first of all, I thought traveling was fun, but I thought, you're telling me that I can go travel and that you're going to take care of my housing, you're going to take care of my phone, you're going to take care of my car and, and meals. 
It was the wow. first first job I had a like a twenty eight dollar or thirty dollar a day meal stipend. So I was like, I have no expenses. That means my whole salary is mine yeah. after yeah, taxes, of course. <laughs> and then I was like, okay. So I knew right then I was I was young, but I was like, I'm gonna pay off my I can pay off my school loans in a year. I did the math. I, like, I can pay off my school loans in a year, and I did. Mm-hmm. And then I thought after that, I could, most of my and I spent a little bit of it, but I I could save. The other thing I did, I took off about eight weeks a year to go travel. One year I took off three months. And I would go, I did, I did traveling in Europe, so I did the Eurail hostel thing. Mm-hmm. I went to Africa several times. And I went, all, went to probably you know, 40, 30, 40 countries around the world. I've got great picture books uh, with my Fujifilm, you know, <laughs> 35 millimeter. Yeah, I've got all these great scrapbooks and stuff that my kids look at today. And I learned a whole lot about life because I grew up in Georgia mostly. Mm-hmm. And, and kind of a rural part of Georgia with, you know, as I said, a pastor, Pentecostal pastor father. And so that opened the world for me. And uh, again, I couldn't have done any of those things without understanding delayed gratification and, and margin. Wow. And even though, I, I, like the other thing was I, I was kind of a shy kid. So I always wondered, like even in my early 20s, I'm like, am I ever going to get to date? Because I'm not the person back then I was now. I was just a shy Mm-hmm. You know, person, I wasn't extremely confident around girls or anything like that. But even with that, I'm kind of glad because because I put some, and I took my time with that. Mm-hmm. I developed those skills. You know, by the time I met, met Megan when I was 25, 26, mm-hmm. um, she was a physical therapist doing an internship at a hospital that I was at out in Texarkana. I was, you know, I was able to actually at least introduce myself to her <laughs> in a confident way or a semi-confident way. So. It took time to build build all of that up, and I think when you're living through it, you think you're never going to get there. Mm-hmm. But it's amazing that if you're willing to to kind of practice this whole concept of delayed gratification, it's, ama- it's amazing the type of resources that you develop, and um, you realize that a lot of things that you think that you need, mm-hmm. they're not needs. It's true. They're wants. Yep. You know, you can, because you could, I mean, I bought a used 4Runner. I had a, I still have it. I have a 1994 runner. I bought it from a chiropractor. His wife, it was his wife's car. He lived in Tampa, Florida. And I think it had 40,000 miles. So I was, and I always loved 4Runners. Mm-hmm. But I was able to buy this thing, you know, for, I think it was like $15,000. This thing, even back then, sold for, I think, 30,000 mm-hmm. 30, yeah. brand new. So I was able to buy this 4Runner at half price. And I bought it about two years into being a therapist because the, the traveling company stopped providing a rental car. So I'm like, okay, man, they stopped providing rental cars. So I gotta, I've actually got to incur this expense. And I, and so, um, I, you know, Auto Trader, I found a, found a used Forerunner, but I kept that Forerunner, um, and I still have it today. It's got 340,000 miles. That's amazing. It's sitting yeah. in my garage. My wife's like, you, our, your kids are not gonna, our kids are not gonna get in this Forerunner. It doesn't have airbags. It's not safe. <laughs> I'm like, no, it's. She's like, get rid of it. I'm like, I don't get rid of it because I've, you know, I've had the engine rebuilt and I had it repainted, but it's still in great shape. It's one mm-hmm. of those classic four-wheel drive, mm-hmm. you know, 1994 runners. Wow. Original engine, 400,000 miles. But that was the first car I bought, or, or out of college at least. And um, I kept, I still have it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I could have, obviously at some point, I, I mean, I was making a lot more money, but I just kept the same car. I kept putting... Um, synthetic oil in it and taking really good care of it and it mm-hmm. continued to 
to reward me, yeah. you know, 300 and almost 350,000 miles later. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah it's, it's crazy. crazy. <laughs> so, a <few> years, <laughs> so a few years ago, I always liked BMWs, but I, I think two and a half, three years ago, I, I finally decided, okay, I'll get a BMW. But, it, but at this point, um, uh, it became a business expense. I mean, my, my business partner and I both have cars through our, our business now. We travel mm -hmm. a lot with the business, do a lot of stuff. So I was finally able to do that. And at that point, that car was not a significant you know, having a, a, a car or actually Mike got a truck because there's a, actually a special uh, deduction, a section 179 deduction for trucks. Wow. If I really wanted to be frugal, <laughs> I would have actually gotten a truck because the deduction's a little bit better for, mm -hmm. for kind of like work trucks as long as you can prove that you're using it to mm -hmm. move stuff around. But no, I mean, that was, um, to me, I think that's a great example of delayed gratification. I don't think having things like a, a nice car or something is bad. And I, you know, in a, but... Um, having it at the right time so that you can realize your dreams and realize your life is really important. And what I could say is that, you know, it's, I like, I really like my BMW now. It's nice and it's, it's, it drives great. But even when I get in that old 4Runner that has almost 350,000 miles, it's, it, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's not that great. You know what I mean? It's kind of, when you really step back, I think what delayed gratification teaches you is that the immediacy of having what you think you want right now in the next day or the next week mm -hmm. and going and signing it off on a big note and a big loan and just going, I don't care what it takes, I'm going to have that right now, I'm going to buy that big house. After a few months, you're like, it's just a thing. Yeah. And yeah. It's, not one, it's not one of the most, it's not the stuff in life that really, really matters. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the greatest thing that delayed gratification, gratification teaches you is that getting stuff in the now uh, that you, that you, that you, all the wants that you want in the now, a Porsche, uh, a vacation, a vacation to wherever, mm -hmm. um, is not really the most fulfilling thing in life. Wow. Yeah. Would you say that's the most important advice you give to young entrepreneurs, business owners right now? That's what I. It, it's it's been my experience. It's, it's 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 what something I speak to because that's kind of yeah for me that's mm -hmm. it's what's become important to me and it's kind of what I've chosen to live. And you know, let me get me wrong. I like being able to. One of my favorite. I'm a, I love to ski now, and uh, I love to do things. But uh, my wife really she likes to go into Cancun, Mexico, and things. But and, and we've actually stayed in a Ritz Carlton a couple of times. We've taken nice trips. But what I've kind of found out is that you can, like, we went, we found there's places we go, like we go to Cancun, I won't say the name of the resort, but it's a, it's an amazing resort. It's all inclusive. It's like really high end, but you can go there, including airfare sometimes for, you know, a five or six day trip for $1,800. Wow. And there's other trips we could spend and we could spend $10,000. But mm -hmm. I've found that, you know, we don't really like, I don't want to go to stay to, I've truly, you know, now that we go to a resort, I'm not interested in staying in Motel 6. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if I'm taking a drive across the country, you know, by me and a friend, or me, you know, by myself, and I just need to grab a night's rest. Then, yeah, I'm okay with a eighty dollar a night clean. Absolutely. I want it to be clean. I don't want to get bed bugs or whatever. But I can. I think that's what I'm speaking to is that um, now we can stay in nicer places, and we do. Mm -hmm. But um, some of the best travel memories I have are I took a safari in South Africa for six weeks, and we stayed in B and Bs, and we did a lot of camping, and we we canoed down the Zambezi River. And, you know, it wasn't one of these Ritz-Carlton lodges where you go out and, at, at Kruger National Park, which is north of Johannesburg, and, you, you know, you can take those vacations. You can spend, you know, $5,000 a night. Well, I spent 
you know, probably th- it was a long time ago, but, you know, three or four thousand dollars for a six week safari. Wow. And wow. it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And that was in a different economy way back mm-hmm. in the in the early two thousands, but or, or a late late nineties actually when I when I did that trip. But the point is that you you know spending tons and tons of money doesn't always equate to the best memories or the best experiences. That's great advice. I want to transition and talk a little bit about your daughter's story and the diagnosis you guys had and just because it's such an inspiring part of your story, if you would like to. So if Mm -hmm. you could just tell us a little bit about that. Yep, so I'd be happy to. Megan and I were married in October of 2000, October 28th of 2000. And... um, So having Sophia, Sophia was born April 22nd, 2002. And we, about, I think six or seven months into Megan's pregnancy with Sophia, she, uh, for insurance reasons, she had to change doctors. And so the new doctor, new um, obstetrician did an ultrasound. And I remember the tech that was doing it, her eyes got big when she went over Sophia's brain and she brought in the doctor and we got a referral to, to a maternal fetal specialist and they, was, they said we have bad news um, you know her, her Sophia's ventricles are really big it looks like she's missing some brain tissue back toward the, the back part of her brain where the visual cortex is she has hydrocephalus uh, something also called ventricular ventricular megaly what all this meant you know we, we, we were healthcare people we we're doing pediatric therapy so a lot of people maybe hear all these medical terms and they don't know what they mean we knew what they meant because that's what we did. We, we, were, we had transitioned a lot of our practice over to doing a pediatric uh, therapy, physical therapy and pediatric occupational therapy with kids with uh, brain injury and cerebral palsy, all these different terms. So I remember we got done with that and they even talked about whether or not we wanted to end the pregnancy and that scared me. It was like, why are they even, what are they, our baby's seven months old. We just got married. Of course we're not ending our pregnancy, but um, they just kind of wanted to let us know that the challenges that were going to be ahead for for this for this child and i remember one of the first things that megan said when we got home was we gotta we gotta create a plan we gotta fix this because mm-hmm. because I, I remember going man what are we oh my gosh you know we were we were, we were kind of upset we were going this is this is a huge shock we were just almost kind of felt like a some of the emotions that you might experience if you if you have um hear about a death or hear about a severe injury of someone that maybe your child or someone that you're really close to someone you love and that's how we felt but megan said you know the first step that came out of her mouth was how are we going to fix this we got to fix this and we knew that the medical system didn't have a a good fix for hydrocephaly or for um, restoring the brain injury or or the visual cortex that had been destroyed Mm -hmm. And um, they said, you know, she's likely going to have seizures. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of complexity with, you know, having this profound brain injury. But we, we Megan had a, a fortunately almost a full term pregnancy with Sophia. They followed the brain development and the fluid that was on her brain. And we um, that that was when we went to the internet and we started looking for things that we were going to do. So we started looking for things that would promote brain growth, integrative measures, because there was no pill you could take mm-hmm. from pharma industry that's going to, you know, cure brain tissue or heal brain tissue 
or regenerate the, the brain pathways, the neuronal pathways that she had lost in the bleed. So that's what we did. We did, a, we did a list and we started writing down all of the things that we could do as part of her therapy program. And you know, we knew pediatric physical therapy and we knew pediatric occupational therapy. Um, but we didn't just, people go, okay, you knew what to do. Well, yeah, we knew some things to do. We knew exercises and we knew range of motion and we knew some basic techniques. But if you have a profound brain injury, you know, even if, as therapists, we're not, we're not magical. You know, we, we, we can't, we can't we're, we're healers, but we're not healers in the sense of just, you know, being able to correct your brain injury. So we uh, started looking at hyperbaric chambers. We started looking at stem cells. Uh, we considered saving Sophia's stem um, cord blood because she was born, as I said, via natural birth and born at 39 weeks gestational age, which is almost full term. And the OB doctor decided, for, decided that that wasn't something he'd ever done and didn't, he thought it was a waste of our money and talked us out of it. Um, we, long story, we went, we went ahead and bought a hyperbaric chamber. We went to uh, Philadelphia. We studied with a guy named Glenn Dolman. I read his book. He has a book, a great book back in the I guess 60s and 70s, it was really popular, called What to Do About Your Brain Injured Child. You can still find this book on Amazon. And he, I think there's like 20 editions or something of this book, because he continued to improve it over a 20, 30 year period. But what he, he was really one of the first integrative practitioners that said, you know, feed your kid, you know, breastfeed as long as possible, do omega-3s, cut out inflammatory foods, eat really clean, brain, something like a brain food diet where you would kind of go more paleo, more of a paleo diet. Uh, there's something called a paleo or a modified ketogenic diet, or, or even so that's a, what I do. He's doing a full ketogenic, ketogenic, diet. ketogenic diet. So there's a lot of evidence, and now it's been when they first started doing it, there was less published evidence. But now there's a ton of evidence that says that this can either slow down or, in some cases, completely eliminate seizure activity in kids who are having seizures. So um, early on, Sophia had some seizures. She didn't have severe seizure activity, but we went ahead and started. Probably today we would probably call it a modified ketogenic diet mm -hmm. with higher proteins, you know, low on the carbs and sugar, and lots of uh, vegetables and omega threes and sixes and nines, mm -hmm. and, and of course Megan breastfed and pumped for as long as possible because Sophia had really low tone. Mm -hmm. But we did all of that. We bought a hyperbaric chamber when Sophia was a bit over a year old. Could you explain how that works for people that don't know how that works? Hyperbarics. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there there is um, there's kind of um, hospital grade hard chamber hyperbarics. There are these huge uh, tubes, or there's essentially chambers. Some of them can look like almost like a, an Apollo space module. They have these airlock doors. Mm -hmm. They're made of steel and sometimes glass or thick plastics uh, that you can see through. And they the hospital grades oftentimes pressurize with 100% oxygen. And you have to have liquid oxygen tanks and stuff outside in order to do that. Those things are obviously highly regulated. But about 15 or 20 years ago, the FDA approved something called mild hyperbarics. So they, they started off as these cylindrical type tubes and they're made out of a, a thick plastic. Usually they have a seal with a, like a zipper. There's different fastening systems. The most common one is a really very, very strong zipper and these huge seals that flap over. And um, so essentially they have compressors and they actually pressurize or inflate the chamber with room air. They filter these compressors, suck in room air, filter it. And just like you'd see a compressor that would like pump, they're very similar to the compressors that you would use to pump up a car tire. 
obviously designed slightly differently, but same same uh, 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 pr principles of pressurization apply. And um, you pressurize these things up to usually about a maximum of between four and six psi, up to around five psi is kind of standard, and that equates to about 1.2 um, atms or 1.2 a, a level of atmospheric pressure is that's what it's called, and um, what happens is that blood gases become more soluble. So things like oxygen and nitrogen and all the stuff we find in air becomes more soluble, and um, and also the, the the size or the molecular size of, of particles of I guess um, oxygen becomes smaller. So you can actually um, you can actually um, permeate. Um, and deliver nutrients and oxygen to the deepest levels of tissue, like you know, to the to the smallest capillaries. And so, what what the the research has shown is that people that engage in hyperbaric oxygen treatment, um, there's this phenomenon that occurs where um, wounds heal faster, uh, angiogenesis occurs, which is just the formation of new of new tissue and new um, cells. And so for someone like Sophia who had a brain injury where tissue in the brain was damaged, there's, there's something called the penumbra or the marginal tissue. And that stuff um, is just shown in most instances, in most, in most studies, it shows that it, it can heal faster. There's other things that occur as well that in the last five, five to seven years we're able to measure with blood tests, like we're able to measure that uh, hyperbaric treatments, uh, they've actually found that with certain pressures of treatments and certain durations of hyperbaric treatment, that the the group of people, the control group that, that received the, the uh, not not the control group, but the group that received the treatment, has more circulating stem cells that we produce in our own marrow, mm -hmm. versus the the group that didn't receive treatment. Uh, things like glutathione uptake, glutathione is a really important um, um, measure, um, a molecule that they can measure, that indicates that we're able to. Um, 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 cope with uh, aging or cellular aging, something called oxidation or oxidative stress. Mm -hmm. So there's there's several biomarkers that we can look at in blood and glutathione is one, T-bars are another thing that we can look at. And most of the evidence is just showing that patients that engage in hyperbaric treatment, physiologically they're more resilient to oxidative stress, there's greater, we can measure greater numbers of circulating stem cells, we know that it promotes angiogenesis, so essentially, you're just getting all of these good things wow. occurring physiologically. Now, whether or not this leads to, you know, less disease or better, you know, lower spasticity, there needs to be more research to confirm all of that. Mm -hmm. But Megan and I went ahead, and if you ask us, well, why did you do it? The, the upside was all good. Mm -hmm. The downside was almost zero. Wow. There, so we could spend $20,000 on this chamber. So Sophia and I spent about 10 years inside this chamber we got into it most nights for about an hour some some nights we pushed it all the way up to about two two and a half hours wow. and um we would just she would normally fall asleep in the chamber if we got in there say on an early night when i'm home from work at 7 38 we'd be in you know after i have dinner we'd read some books have some father-daughter time and then usually and if we stayed in it more than an hour at some point 8, 8.39, she's going to be asleep, mm -hmm. and then I might, we may stay in there another hour. I'd, I would get her out, take her up to her bed, 
and that was our routine for many many years but that was just a piece of her uh of her of her program we did all these other things we did nutrition we did sensory integration approaches we did ndt we did patterning we, we did respiratory masking and then when she was three or four years old i went to india and we did some ayurveda with uh, with g therapy out of out of pune india with dr gunvant oswald mm -hmm. so there's a whole different experience i had in india with ayurvedic medicine wow it's amazing it's amazing so instead of using just one approach, we, we, we I, I like to say we used a multidisciplinary, multi-sensory, all-in kind of integrative approach. So we didn't just you know choose one thing and say that's gonna you know it's like it's like life. If you're gonna be a great economist, you know yeah you you probably don't become a great economist by taking economics 101. I mean you still you take a bunch of advanced economic classes, but you also take um, psychology, and you know you need to know a little bit about math. And mm -hmm. you know, if you're really well rounded, and if you're really going to be be great at something, you know, great athletes don't just engage in one or two um, strength and conditioning activities. I mean, they 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 really seek nutrition. They maybe work on their sports psychology. They work on obviously endurance and flexibility. flexibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a, and if you look at a great athlete, oftentimes you'll see that they have, you know, 10 or 15 things that they work on them via single tasking. They don't work on all 20 things at the same time, of course, but they're probably working on 20 things that, that, that builds them up to being an elite ap athlete. Wow. So Sophia, we did the same thing. We, we, we had a bunch of things we were doing mm -hmm. and we were constantly trying to evaluate risk and reward benefit. And Megan and I actually had this whole risk-reward-benefit analysis. And so some of the things we were doing for a period of time would change. Because you can't do everything. You know, there's, a, we have, there's only, so what we would do, we actually had a schedule. And Megan would divide the day up in 15-minute slots. Wow. We weren't always perfectly on those slots. But it gave us a, a grid to go by because, um, and that's, we can't, you just can't do everything. You know, we, one of the reasons we bought a, a chamber for our home is because the closest hyperbaric chamber that we, could have, that we had access to was in Atlanta. We were living on the other side of Athens. Mm -hmm. It was good with traffic. Hour it was going to be an hour and a half, maybe but get stuck in traffic, even two hours mm -hmm. on a bad traffic day, up two hours back, with two yeah. hours there probably for the treatment. Well, that's six hours every day. If you're going to mm -hmm. spend up to, mm -hmm. maybe up to four hours in a day in the car, that just wasn't a feasible option five days a week. And you still had Rehab Mark too. You yeah, still had Rehab on. Mark. Megan was working part-time as a physical therapist. I mean, it was an intense, I mean, we look back on it and, and say, you know, how did we do it? How did we survive it? But, you know, most, you do, you know, you're in your thirties, your life dealt you this set of cards. Mm -hmm. and, and at that point, you know, we kind of, we kind of had to play the cards that we were dealt. Understood. It's amazing. It's a definition mm -hmm. of a true entrepreneur. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. yeah, balancing all that. It's, it's very inspiring. And the positivity yeah. too. Yeah. Being positive throughout the whole time. Continue to try to stay optimistic and believing that. Um, now, Sophia, the story with Sophia is this: so if you, what happened with that is that um, she was she was diagnosed with legal blindness, and um, she lost that label a few years ago. But she had vertical nystagmus, she had seizures, so she no longer. And you know, I'd say by the age of four or five, we haven't detected. She hasn't had any recent EGs because there's no sign of seizure activity. But she hasn't had a single seizure in over ten years that we're aware of. Um, she. 
uh, wears glasses now, thick glasses, but you know her her ability to see and read um, is you know she can she can actually use an iPhone 10 now. You know I thought for years that she'd probably maybe be able to use an iPad with the large font settings, but she's mm-hmm. she's actually able to see. I think she does increase the size of some of the things on her phone, but she typically you know uses thing like an I, iPhone in a typical in a typical way. She's able to you know use a, a MacBook a laptop, MacBook Air, 13 inch. You know, open up Word, a Google, a Google document. She's able to type on, you know, type using a standard keyboard. You know, type basic. Now she's not a fast typer because of her visual impairment, but the fact that she's able to use standard technology without uh, without a ton of accommodation is is amazing. Mm-hmm. She six. She turned sixteen years old on, on April twenty second. She's a, a senior, at, uh, not a senior. She's a freshman, ninth grader, mm-hmm. at North Oconee High School. So, she's just made. Um, a ton of, of progress. She's in mostly regular ed classes. Uh, she she was in regular ed all the way up to the ninth grade in all regular ed classes. This year she's she, we've got we've, we've, she's she's had a lot of math tutors, a lot of science tutors, and she's really good with verbal skills. She's really good with language arts. She's a spokesperson for ESP, but wow. she but she admits that complex reasoning, complex sequencing, you know, skills um, that are required for math and science. Those parts of her brain are, you know, she struggles with that. The wiring for that is um, is more challenging. But at some point, you should interview her because she speaks much more eloquently than I do to those challenges that she experienced, that she's currently experiencing. And that's one of the great things about where she's at with her, with her. Um, I hate to call it a disability, but I'll just call it with her with the abilities that she has challenges with mm-hmm. she's she's really good at articulating and describing what her weaknesses are and she's still working to be the best she can be but um you know she's she's increasingly aware of certain limitations and she kind of is learning how to cope with those things and express mm-hmm. those things that's amazing that's an amazing story it's amazing. yeah We'll have to talk to her. Yeah, we'd love to interview her. Yeah, she's very articulate. That's one of her passions. This past year, she was really kind of honored and excited. Um, There's a nonprofit in Watkinsville called Extra Special People, Mm -hmm. and she's been the ambassador for that organization for the last year. And um, she's done some of their public speaking events when they go to media and you know Mm -hmm. promote. um, they've, They've actually just got a new piece of property out near Jefferson, Georgia, and they're developing this amazing uh, camp. Uh, for people with special needs, they're, they're, I think they're raising more than ten million dollars. Probably eventually a lot more than that. They're going to create one of the first um, fully accessible camps, so that anyone in a wheelchair, or anyone that with this ambulatory, will have uh, really low-grade ramps or you know that, that that are not steep, so that the kids will be able to sleep on the top bunks with these types of ramps if they want to. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll be able to access. Uh, the, the multiple ponds on the property or there's I think there's actually a lake on the property um, be able to access everywhere on the entire property entire camp which just with just wide doors and full accessibility whether you're in a wheelchair or you're ambulatory or you have vision issues or whatever so it's a pretty amazing organization they're doing they're, they've they set, they cast all this vision and um, Sophia is just really happy to be a part of it and um, one of her passions is is speaking, uh, kind of empowerment into others who are struggling with mm-hmm. with less than normal abilities or what they like to I think refer to instead of they don't use the term disability very often they I think they use the term differently abled or having unique abilities mm-hmm. and so um, 
Yeah, she's just really great at speaking to that organization and how the people there are really positive, they're really empowering, and what they try to do is find the strengths in all of these individuals that have these, what we would refer to as classical disability. Mm-hmm. But instead of seeing the disability, they really look for the strengths in, in each individual, and they look for the abilities in each individual, and they really just accentuate and highlight that. And I've seen that with Sophia. They, I mean, she literally, instead of focusing on what she doesn't have or what she's lost, she kind of focuses now on what she has and what is possible. Wow, that's a very positive mindset. Yeah. How, how do you? How do you? I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. No. Okay. Sorry. So, uh, how do you think the challenges or the um, hard times you face uh, as a father and as through the business when you were running everything, you were doing everything, um, you were working through the day, working at night. How do you think that prepared you to become a successful entrepreneur down the road? Well, I I just think that I mean those times were tough. I mean it you need to have a strong partner if you if you have a partner a wife or a spouse or just a partner that can understand I mean entrepreneurs are hard to live with so because we're so driven and we're just keep driving 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 and even when the cards are you know the chips were down um, keeping that optimism uh, that's that's I think that's a, a great strength I think it can be really wearing on people that have to live through that for five six seven years so it's tough on a relationship fortunately I've got a great wife who um, who was able to I mean there were some tough times but she was able to weather a lot of those storms and in the good times I would come back and I, I probably didn't say this enough but just just say thank you for continuing to be there and because it's not easy for someone that just is because this does not always happen fast, you know, mm-hmm. and they have to kind of live through those those trials of, you know, you got this, this husband that's staying up to 2 a.m., not just occasionally, but all the time, mm-hmm. not coming to bed with you, up in the next morning, always always adding something else to the plate, always coming up with a new idea. And I think that's one of her things. Is, um, so I don't know how I've answered that question. but that's a great answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, basically, that sounds, that's great. I just want to express to people that in order to build something great you have to work very hard and you have to put in a lot of hours you can't half-ass don't wanna, I don't want to curse but you don't you can't half-ass a job and expect to get amazing results by just doing half the work you're always you're and you're always iterating and sometimes it doesn't happen um, you always hear about these overnight success stories but when you speak to the overnight success entrepreneur most of the time you realize that there was a period of, you know, a three, four, five year block. It could be a 10 year period where it was not overnight success. It was just, I wasn't sure where, you know, resources, next payroll, whatever was going to come from. I'm sitting up all night. I'm tired. I'm pushing some of my family relationships to the limit. Mm-hmm. And um, those are really the, the more typical things that I believe are, are, are true and that, that really kind of vet out. But you know, sometimes in, in the 30-second soundbite, you see the guy going from, or, or the person going from, you know, zero to 60. And, it, you know, 60 is great, but a lot of times you're, you're plugging along at five miles an hour for years and years and yep. years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it takes a lot of perseverance. It does. Lot, yeah, a lot of years of hard work. That was our experience with it. And uh, and then and then making sure, now one of the, my wife, I think some people would say, what if you what if you just hang out and you're not seeing revenue growth or success? But I guess those those people eventually just they do have to give you know at some point it becomes 
when do you hang, hang it up? Um, but for us, it was just, just, just keep showing up day after day. And again, I go back to because I was willing to have some delay to engage in delayed gratification and create margin, mm -hmm. then um, that was probably what, probably I think the main thing that allowed us to get to where we're at today as, as a as a family, as an organization, mm -hmm. maybe maybe even as a person. And I'm still I'm not there, <laughs> still working on it. Yeah. Um, if if you had, if you just had to give one piece of advice to somebody. Somebody that let's say that's somebody that's either struggling in a business right now, or um, he's going through a lot. There's a you know hard on cash flow and just not a lot of money. What piece of advice would you give them? So I'd say um, just have a, have a conversation with with yourself or with um, someone that 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 cares about you, mm -hmm. and ask ask yourself the question and, and, and document it, like write it down and say. First of all, how much do I really believe in this business idea? Mm -hmm. and, and so you need to really believe in it, number one, and you need to believe something's there. Number two, you have to be serious about making sure that even though you, believe, you might really believe in it, is there a path to monetization? Mm -hmm. It's like I can believe in doing hyperbarics in a submarine you know, five miles under the sea, and just because I might believe that it's going to do something great physiologically to my body. And I believe in hyperbarics, but five, the five mile under the sea part's the part. Just because I believe there might be something to it, you know, me being able to get submarines that can go five miles down, mm -hmm. you know, getting a pathway to monetizing that, no matter how much I would believe in mm -hmm. doing something five miles under the sea, it may or may not, you know, that's probably not going to happen anytime soon. So you got to be realistic. At the same time, entrepreneurs sometimes believe the impossible. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of a balancing act with that. Um, but look, most of the ideas have, you just, just, just be serious about the monetization. So believe in it, but also make sure that there's a path to monetization and understand, understand what the market is. You know, with Rehab Mart, we knew that people were going to start living longer. There were going to be hundreds of millions of more people in the U.S. and around the world living into their 60s, 70s, eventually their 80s and 90s. So there's going to be, like in our industry, I knew that. I knew that there was going to market. There's going to be a growing market every single year with people wow. living longer. Yeah. And I knew that that Medicare, Medicaid, all the insurance entitlements, healthcare entitlements, well, they're probably going to be here. They're having to cut back. They're having to ration healthcare. Mm -hmm. So people with more resources are getting less even people with less resources aren't there's just not as much to go around so with that people have to turn to buying stuff online mm -hmm. and so we're seeing that every year internet sales grow internet usage grows people connecting using technology and mm -hmm. using this thing called the World Wide web grows so as long as you know that you have a growing market for your product or service and you and you can document that and believe in that mm -hmm. that that is kind of the piece to proving there is monetization Wow. That's really important. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. Yeah. So believe yeah. believe in yourself, number one, and then Definitely. and then find a pathway to mo to monetization. Pivot when you have to, you know, because mm -hmm. you do you got to get at some point you got to get paid. I understand there's models out there where you give away the freemium model, you give it away for a period of time to gain user base, and if you're gaining user base, uh, you know, and you, and you can convert those you those users to paying mm -hmm. customers, fine. But yeah, yeah, you have to make money at some point. Absolutely. And uh, we'll just have one last question before we you know, cut off. We've held you up for enough time already. Um, uh, what was my last question? 
Oh, um, how important is um? I had it. I just completely lost my train of thought. I was listening to you. Um, uh, how important is having a bigger purpose than when it comes to building a business? How important is it to have a bigger purpose like yours is to help people? Correct. And how important is that to build a successful business? Is that something that's necessary? I think it's increasingly necessary in the world we live in. We live in a world that is that is um, that is global. That is increasingly multi cultural um that you know we're, we're living in a melting especially in the u.s but even worldwide we're living in a melting pot and so the people that i know we have divisive politics and all that going on right now but we're going to increasingly live in a global world mm -hmm. and i really believe that business leaders that align their businesses with values that are just good and righteous mm -hmm. you've, you're going to have a better better chance of succeeding because the majority of people I think align themselves with those values you're always going to have whatever percent I don't know if it's what the percent is 10% maybe that don't but the majority of the world is going to increasingly align with those values and you start whether you're looking at you know I like to listen to Bill Gates and he even though he I don't think he everyone I mean he's such a monk now he's such an amazing like um, I almost see him as a as a, a spiritual leader mm -hmm. because of how he is so uh, humble and so not self-serving now with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. But you know, I've heard him speak and I listen to a lot of his podcasts. He, I don't think he, you know, he didn't start there completely. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he he became that person over time, and I think that's kind of where you know that's something I would aspire to be more and more like mm -hmm. as I as I age. I guess that's one of the things we we have a set of values here that's you know that's aligned with all of that. You know, of, of uh, of being virtuous and being righteous and empowering people and you know all the the basic stuff like you know treat, treating all humans with respect and not discriminating and all that kind of stuff and we're really trying that's really important our organization that we create a professional organization number one but also an organization that not just says those things because it's easy to hire a business psychologist to come in and create a set of of core values and, and to try to establish a culture that does those things but it's another thing to actually do your best to kind of live it out every day. So mm -hmm. you know, to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. Applying it. Applying it. So that's, and you know, no one's perfect, but we, as long as you're, there is, there is, you will be measured on whether or not you can wake up every day and try, and that will eventually vet itself out. Your peers, your peers and your friends and your colleagues, if, you know, if they work with you, you know, a year, they, they know they, they're going to feel who you are. They, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to know who you are because they, they work with you day in and day out. So with our organization, that's one of the places we're at. There's a lot of people, anyone could create an e-commerce site, work on distribution and partner with manufacturers and sell stuff in our space of rehabilitation, uh, of, of selling rehabilitation products and doing re rehabilitation health care. No one really wants to have to buy a hyperbaric chamber or a walker or a cane or a bath seat because you can no longer get into the bathtub so you have to buy this plastic chair to sit in your tub it kind of sucks to have to need something like that mm -hmm. so we are increasingly you know one of our values is that we want i want us to be in the solutions business and the empowerment business so they're going how can you do that you just sell a medical supply we know i mean people are really trying to solve a really challenging um thing that occurred kind of a health crisis. you know you your, your grandmother has a stroke Mm -hmm. That's horrible, but after it occurs, there's certain things that you need to do with physical therapy and OT, and, and, and oftentimes certain pieces of equipment are a part of that. Being able to 
and go online and receive information from from therapists and from writers and, and from guides that actually help you make purchasing choices because there's there's 200 different types of bath seats mm-hmm. and bath seats are just one of a hundred different hundred thousand different rehabilitation items that we sell mm-hmm. so it, it's it's a you know it's really complex when when you're dealing with this major healthcare crisis either your partner or your some or your family member or your child someone you know has this really horrible um, thing occur to them and now they need to go through re, you know a rehab process a rehabilitation process Therapy equipment, you know, seeing physicians and others, other healthcare providers is all part of that. So, I really just want to say that if we can focus on being a solutions provider mm-hmm. and empowering people to make the best decisions for a product, for a service, for maybe in the future we want to move more and more to integrative healthcare products like like a hyperbaric cha- chamber, maybe probiotics, microbiome, mm-hmm. maybe an evidence-based supplement. Uh, get people thinking about nutrition. Nutrition's really big in my life and in my family's life and in Sophia's life. So we want to increasingly move toward um, a solutions-oriented company that creates content. And we're speaking of digital content that's mm-hmm. both written in the form of, um, of guides, blogs, journals, um, buying guides. Mm-hmm. And um, also we want to move into video. And mm-hmm. we've already started doing that where we're actually... Um, we, have, we have an idea to kind of create, create, create this healthcare channel mm-hmm. that uh, reviews products kind of like a um, consumer reports, mm-hmm. but also that interviews amazing integrated practitioners who are doing work with the microbiome to create a healthier immune system. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've had a, maybe a brain injury or something like that, there's certain uh, nutrition uh, formularies or protocols that you could apply to your daily you know, nutrition intake mm-hmm. that could give you an edge, help you age more gracefully, help you uh, generate more neurons, you know, improve cognition. Those are things that we really wanted to move into, those empowerment areas. And, and, and of course, always linking it to what, to best practices and to emerging evidence, you know, published evidence. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're kind of moving through that right now with something called Caregiver University. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really excited about that. I'm really, I'm really, that's one of my passions and one of my values is, is to empower people to make better choices for, for their health and for their, you know, not only for their, uh, their physical health and their re- rehabilitative health, but for also for their psychological health. Absolutely. And so I believe activity, uh, nutrition, targeted supplements, maybe a, a certain probiotic, all of those things can work together, mm-hmm. at, you know, with you know through a plan for, for people just you know aging more gracefully. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe it's not about how long we live, but maybe it's about uh, for for the time we are here, that, you know how, how good we live, mm-hmm. how you know, how 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 present we are in the moment. It feels good, yeah. It's really it's really inspiring for me because yeah. I'm trying to go to medical school, so I was thinking about becoming a pediatrics. And I really want to make a difference. So like hearing your story, it makes me really want to make a difference now in everyone's world and just being a solution. Because I thought about creating products also to help you know, kids that can't afford it or don't have enough health care. Mm-hmm. So I think this, this is really interesting. We have a lot of low-income kids in our country that you know, they, maybe they get their immunizations and stuff, but their nutrition's not really good. They're spending more time in front of a TV. We have a problem with childhood obesity. A lot of these kids aren't eating, the right, eating foods, but they're not necessarily eating the right food so just some small changes and some all some degrees of empowerment where parents 
and and and, and other schools programs are, are are empowered to make sure kids are having the right amount of activity. Uh, we could potentially start adding certain type of good probiotics to foods if if we can mm-hmm. prove that those probiotics strengthen the immune system. So we're using less antibiotics. Maybe if we can do that, we're creating less drug resistant bacteria. We're using mm-hmm. less antibiotics, and we're using the good the prebiotics, the probiotics, along with great nutrition cutting back on the complex carbs and the sugars and all of a sudden we're not having kids you know maybe maybe in, in the future we affect autism the, the d- degrees of how many kids are diagnosed you know we're having this huge explosion of having uh, maybe one out of i've heard different uh, reports now one out of 70 kids born i've even heard as, as, as few as one uh one out of 50 kids are now being diagnosed with an autis- autism spectrum disorder di- diagnosis or label and um you know, those type things are kind of scary. We're seeing all these kids with a hyperactivity disorders and uh, um, all types of spectrum disorders, um, you know, things like cerebral palsy and other things, I think, with some studies are on the rise. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a ton of opportunity there to make an impact and to hopefully reverse some of these trends. And uh, where can people go to find, um, if they're looking for some rehabilitation stuff, or some equipment, where can they go to find that? And so our main company is just Rehab Mart. It's R-E-H-A-B-M-A-R-T, RehabMart.com. Mm-hmm. And then I have a, a blog a site as well at, at my name, HewlettSmith.com. That's just H-U-L-E-T-S-M-I-T-H.com. All right. All right. We'll be posting this in our show notes yeah, as well. Yeah. All the, all the websites, books, and everything mentioned will be in the uh, show notes. Thank you guys for tuning in. And thank you, um, you yeah, for an thank amazing you very interview. Much. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank, thank you, you for It was nice meeting you. you. Today's episode was sponsored by Drop Top Rentals. Drop Top Rentals is changing the way people rent cars at airports. You can book them at www.drop.rentals. An app is coming soon. They're nationwide, currently available in Atlanta, and soon to be available in Dallas and Los Angeles. The way Drop Top Rentals works is you drive straight to your airline's curbside check-in and spot the valet. You hand your keys to the professional valet and head to check-in, and then the valet will top up fuel without any surcharge, and you only pay the pump price. The valet will return your rental and send you a receipt in minutes, and you will be on your way to your flight. And So I highly recommend to book them today at www.drop.rentals.